you've had a chance to do some formal practice today um, as a group together. It's very strengthening to practice in a group rather than when you're alone. Like a group of dolphins who swim through the sea. Usually you see them as a group. They have great ocean to explore, but they tend to explore it as a group. With human beings, the exploration that we do is a solitary one. But when we practice in a group, our ability to explore the solitary part, where, which is the only part that we can actually do, no one else can explore that for us. But when we work together in a group, it's very reinforcing, it's edifying, it's uplifting. If we have a moment when we feel like we can't face what we're feeling, or we can't face what's arising, we look around and see other people sitting quietly, intently, devoted, eager, sitting upright, and not giving up, not running out, not being distracted, then it becomes a source of uplift for us to get back in there and keep exploring. And this is the power of spiritual friendship. And we must never underestimate that. So whatever we've been through in our lives, no matter how terrible, many of us have suffered different forms of what we consider abuse or punishment or heavy kama, whatever you want to call it, everyone has their fair share. If they didn't have it in childhood, they had it in their 20s. If not in the 20s, in the 30s, and so forth. And old age can also feel um, very difficult, very challenging. You start to lose your functioning, mental or physical, or both. It becomes a time of worry, and some people become very reclusive because they're afraid to go out. Uh, some people start being reclusive when they're young and are just afraid of the world. Even young people today suffer different forms of um, allergies, environmental sensitivities, so many, so many um, inclinations which are strong reactions to the environment that they're in, to other people, and they, they need special care. So when you look around at the world, I can tell you, just coming into Toronto is a very shocking experience, <laughs> coming in from the, from the forest, from the woods. Uh, I feel like uh, a stranger in a strange land. But this is, this, those of you who live here, this is normal. It's nothing, there's nothing strange about the traffic. It's just we become inured to these things so that they no longer feel strange. But in a way, it's kind of an incursion on our consciousness, having to deal with so much happening around you, so 
much input, so much impact. Well, whatever impacts there are, uh, or whatever has impacted us throughout our life, there are ways that we can rescue ourselves. There are ways that we can make the heart resilient. And these ways are not on the outside, they're, they're inner ways. They're not secret either. If you study the teachings and go deeply into them, you will find that the Buddha understood how we can change the kama that we've been born with, how we can turn it towards that which will rescue us. And no matter how horrible we feel our journey has been, or how out of balance there is a possibility to bring ourselves back into balance. But it takes work. There's no shortcut. But we have to develop the faith that we can do that. And that's, that, that's something quite, uh, perhaps, revolutionary. So many of you have presented questions and some of these questions are linked by uh, what I've been speaking about. In particular, um, for those of you that feel you've been through unspeakable trauma and are looking for something that will give you strength. So it, it's about devotion to the healing and ways of looking for spiritual friendship and solidarity in the company of good spiritual friends and changing our own mental habits. Because we, we get very identified with being a victim. I know I was myself because my parents lived through the Holocaust and I didn't. But I grew up with their pain and I always felt some kind of guilt that I didn't, I didn't have to go through that. They spoiled me, they, they gave me the best that life could give, but I could always feel their pain. And I began to identify with it, that their pain is my pain. And so I suffered a lot of pain, secondhand pain. It's like secondhand smoke. It can kill you. you you hold on to that pain and you believe it's yours and you walk around inviting people to hurt you because you, you feel like you've been so badly hurt. But that gives a message. Even if you have been harmed by people and didn't invite them to harm you, they're, they're not harming you now. They're not harming you now. This is important to remember. When we're looking for healing, we have to leave behind the things that we carry around or that we've been carrying around for decades that we believe are harming us. And what is harming us are our thoughts about the past and our belief that that past is still happening. And the body knows that because many of these insults and inflicted 
you could say punishments that we've received, uh, were done in ways that are violent, you could say, like people not behaving skillfully. And what we can learn from that is what we don't want to repeat. Rather than allowing those tapes to play over and over again in the mind, as we grow up as adults, we are actually the, the architects, the directors of what comes in the mind. So we have to learn about four ways of dealing with the phenomena that arise in consciousness. One of them is that you welcome it. Another one, if it's skillful, you welcome it. If it's not skillful, you restrain it. And if it's not skillful and it has not come into consciousness yet, you, you keep away from it. Like you don't stay with people that act in ways that trigger us. And if we do, we have to set boundaries. We have to set boundaries. No, you may not speak to me that way. And if we have not met people that we can trust, then we have to seek them out. If we uh, find situations that enhance our strength and give us confidence and good energy, then we have to develop that and repeat it and visit those places, those people, those situations more and more and more and seek out that which supports the best in us. Because the best is not in someone else, it's here within us. And the worst is not within us and it's not in someone else, it's what we create. It's what we bring forth through ignorance. And we can actually abandon that. But we have to realize we have the power to abandon it. So we think it's within us, but it doesn't have to be. It's like a gardener. You uproot the weeds. You don't cultivate the weeds, you uproot them. But you, you water the flowers. And this takes very careful... Sometimes the roots are so entangled, it, you have to spend a long time disentangling that which is within the heart that we need to disentangle. Separate out the chaff from the grain, like a farmer. We can all do this. We have to realize the possibility of doing it. So the meditation practice is what? It's like being your own doctor. Realizing that we have illness, unwellness. And some of us might feel like we don't. I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. But if we recognize that we're identified with uh, our karmic predicament, this is who I am, I'm, I'm permanently injured, I'm permanently damaged, well, that's not, that's not helpful. It's not helpful to give ourselves these messages. And we can get support. Sure, you can go uh, for psychotherapy or many kinds of therapy. But the, the most important thing we have to do is realize that we have impediments and to work towards knowing them well and then getting the support that we need. In the beginning, 
we might need uh, counseling or guidance. But later on, I believe, I firmly believe, I testify, <laughs> later on, we don't need that. We have, we have within us a gold mine, and we need to find those nuggets of gold and disclose them, shed light on them, and bring them up into consciousness again and again and again. So I'm trying by speaking in this way to answer some of the questions that have been posed. So it's not about focusing on any part of the body or the brain. This is not, not the practice. This is not an understanding of the practice. There is no thing in the body, nowhere in the body, that we can focus that will somehow magically unfold itself and yield some kind of experience of wellness, well-being, or freedom. But it's to see how the body holds our anger, our fear, our sense of being sick, being weak, being terrified, being downtrodden, being unworthy, being helpless. That, the body holds that, and it holds it because this is our vehicle. It's like when you drive your vehicle over rough terrain, or look at most Canadian cars, when once it snows, they get covered in salt, and they look a mess. But we feel kind of heroic when we see, we get back from a trip and the car is covered with salt and snow. Ah, but we've arrived where we had to go because we have snow tires. And because we're good drivers. We don't drive, but I mean, you're good drivers. You learn how to drive through rough terrain. But I remember I used to live in Boston and one time there was a snowstorm, terrible snowstorm. And people were completely helpless, had no, the city management, they didn't know how to deal with these conditions. And I've, I thought back to being in Canada and how, how quickly and easily our governments were able, our local city um, snow cleaning teams would come in and do it all and end of story. But where they were not used to these kinds of storms, there was this frozen, play on words, but yeah, there was this deep freeze of how do we get out of this mess? So preparedness is everything. We have to understand that we enter the trenches of our spiritual imprisonment and we have to pick up the weapons that will get us out of those trenches. And for a while it might feel like we're in a battle. But we have to use, uh, the battle is to disarm ourselves and to stop fighting. And the trench is just a, a metaphor for a place of protection. We have to put ourselves into the refuge of that which protects us, not that which doesn't protect us. So we use wisdom. 
we point our, our, ourselves towards that which is true, that which can really uplift the heart. And we look closely at what is true within us. We search into the mind, not the brain. This is not, you know, please don't mistake this practice for some kind of method by which if you send the right um, intensity of laser concentration into the center of your forehead for long enough that magically some button gets pressed and you get ejected from suffering. Right? This is really not what it's about. It's about digging deep. It's about sometimes being covered in mud, splattered with blood, the flood of tears, and the blood of the pains of your life. And seeing that and having compassion for yourself as a suffering being in a suffering realm, and knowing that there is a way out of that. But we have to just acknowledge it, and know it for what it is, and set it down. Because we hold it, thinking it belongs to us. It doesn't belong to us, it's just the landscape, the terrain of our traverse through this realm, this human realm. All of us travel a different path, and every path has high points, low points, medium points, but everyone has points, coordinates. And we, we follow those coordinates, and we take stock from time to time. Where am I? How do I feel? Who am I? What is this journey? The meditation practice is a way of scoping that terrain and knowing it intimately, so that we're not identified with any of it. It's just the spiritual uh, journey is is to see the suffering, to know that there is that, but there is a way beyond it. To forgive, finally, knowing what we've lived through, to finally forgive the so-called perpetrators of our suffering. We may not realize, we may not realize that we have, there's a whole crowd of people that we drag with us through our journey. And we believe that they caused our suffering. Well, in our memories, yeah, there may be people who hit, were violent, betrayed, and didn't treat us with respect, etc. But to know that and to forgive is the better part of our healing. Is the greater part of our healing. To let them go, to set them free. You think, well, I can't do that. Of course you can. We have to. We have to do that, that's why we're here. We're here to forgive not just those people, but every being on the route including ourselves, who has hit and been hit, who has hurt and been hurt, who has harmed and been harmed. And to put down harm, to
to set free harm forever by devoting ourselves to not harming. That's what we do as monastics. We devote ourselves to living harmlessly. It's very difficult. I'm talking about in body, in speech, and in mind. So it's the thoughts that are doing the harm. In the beginning, the harm was an exterior thing. It was an incident, a series of incidents, years of incidents, parenting, teachers, whoever, you name it. Thieves, getting raped, getting run over, being shot. So much harm in this world. But then there is forgiveness of the harm. If we don't forgive the harm, and the effects of it, then we forever replay it over and over again with an angry mind, and we are for, forever angry. But truly this, this journey, this sojourn, is like climbing Mount Everest, climbing the tallest mountain, so that we can climb out of that self-harming. We were taught how to be harmed, and then we continue to abuse ourselves through our, through our memories, through our thoughts. But by climbing beyond that, through these acts of healing and forgiveness, we let go the monsters of the mind, we let them go, and we come to a place of peace within us, a place of having put down the past. We just set it down. The body holds it, we may even be sick as a result of those traumas. But the mind slowly begins to emerge from that cesspool of suffering. And as it emerges, we bless ourselves. We bless those people who perpetrated this, this harm and who themselves have to suffer the shame of it forever until they're forgiven or until they forgive themselves. So whether we are perpetrator or victim, we have to learn this, these acts of forgiveness. And it's only through facing the mind and what the mind holds, the heart. It's not the brain. Please don't. Those of you that are concerned about which part of the brain you have to focus on, no, you, want, you have to get out of the head. You can't do this through ideas or concepts, but through feeling what you're carrying within your heart. Go down into the depths of the heart and bring up the pearls that lie buried there. Bring them into the light and study the heart. See truly what is in the heart. The heart, the chitta, heart-mind, if you want to call it that, is self-luminous. It is luminous. But it has been hidden behind trauma, behind suffering of many degrees, some more, some less. And then we, what we're doing is emptying, emptying our burden, shedding, shedding the burden little by little and revealing that which is within us. 
and this is one of my favorite quotes, uh, which I, you've probably heard it already from the Gospel of Thomas. If you bring forth that which is within you, that which is within you will save you. That is this, this jewel, this luminosity. And the Buddha teaches us the map of consciousness, the way, the steps, the very subtle movements of the mind that will help us to reveal that luminosity. Some of you have experienced it, or you wouldn't be here today. And if we do not bring forth that which is within us, that which is within us will destroy us. So if we don't know and little by little let go what we're holding from the past, all the destructive behaviors and all the insults that we've been subjected to, if we're still holding those and they're lodged in the heart like the, the poisoned tips of arrows, if we don't extract those and see them for what they are and let them go, then they will destroy us for sure. I'll read this to you. It's from the suttas. All ways of life can be the means of deliverance and the great peace. The Buddha was talking to Anantapindika, one of his great supporters. And he says, all ways of life can be the means for deliverance, but on one condition only. And Anantapindika says, and on what condition is that, Lord? And he says that impatiently. And the Buddha says, that they are untainted by any thought of self. It is not enough to give up your wealth as long as the least thought of self remains it will spoil all your beneficence whatever goodness we reap whatever knowledge or wisdom we reap if we hold that as self if we think oh i'm so great i'm such a good meditator or even feel grand because of our, our good conduct, our good speech, or our, our great practice. We're holding on to the self. Just like somebody who holds on to all the horrible bits. It's the same self that we create. I'm a downtrodden. I'm abused. I'm a victim. I've been beaten. I'm, I've been mistreated. Life has been cruel to me, unjust. All these describe a self which is not true. The meditation practice, little by little, through that lens. Have all of you used a camera? You have to focus if you want to get a photograph that you can see who it is. What is it you're photographing? You have to focus your camera. You don't just go around clicking. So when we look at our suffering, and we think how huge it is, well, that's really exaggerated. 
We keep seeing it as that's all we can see sometimes. We, we become blinded by that. We are not seeing truly the impermanence of it. We only see the unsatisfactory of it,ness of it. But we don't see its impermanence. And we don't see that it's actually empty. It doesn't exist anymore. It's only been encrusted in the mind. And its existence is our own formulation. It's a formulation and a formation that has happened through repetition. But if we practice letting that go and seeing through it moment by moment as we empty the mind through this practice, we see through that suffering, we know that it's not me, not mine. And it falls away. And then it arises again, not me, not mine. We keep repeating. It's like a sculpture. Like when a sculptor is working with stone, little by little, the face, the features of the face in the rock become apparent. And before you know it, you're looking at your own face. And it's the face of enlightenment. It's luminous. Because we've allowed the suffering to fall away. That is what we're capable of. As long as there's any trace of the self, we keep looking in the wrong way. But when we start to look in the right way, we see the possibility of freedom. So it's very simple, but to actually accomplish that is not so simple. But because we know it's possible, because the Buddha, surprise, surprise, taught four noble truths, not one. He taught, yes, there is suffering. But he also taught there is an origin of suffering. Once we know that the origin of suffering is what causes the suffering, then we know there's a way out of it. And that's the third noble truth. There is a way to end that suffering. And then he teaches the way to end that suffering. What is that way? It's not just meditation, is it? Who knows? Yes? The Eightfold Path? Yes, my friend. That is correct. So the Eightfold Path is right view. We have to see the truth and move towards it over and over again. And stop living in the past. Stop blaming the past, the world, life, our gender, whatever it might be. Because these are all things that are not permanent, not what we are. They're empty. But if we keep directing our minds to that which is true, then that which is true will direct us. And then right intention. We have to know how to do that. We have to know how to use thought skillfully and not allow vile or poisonous thoughts to infect our own consciousness. Even if people are no longer yelling at us, we learn to yell at ourselves. It's like we have a hidden tape recorder and we keep pressing the play button. We have to stop doing that. It's the mental habit. 
This is a karmic thing. And many times you might hear this or you, you might actually know this for yourself. Our karma, our karmic predicament, could have within it the, the seeds of what we're experiencing now. Maybe we have been very vile and cruel to someone in the past, and now we suffer the results of that, the vipaka, the effect of that which we have done in another life. And this is what the Buddha presents to us. This is the reality, and we trust that because the Buddha was fully enlightened. He didn't make it up. There are people who have the ability to know their past lives. This is not a dream. There is a cyclical nature to this realm, to samsara, the cosmos. So then, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. This is conduct. Conduct in speech, these two lips, and we have to also remember there's internal speech. It's as if there's a radio commentator in there who might be habitually saying, you're no good, you can't do this. Is it true? Sometimes. Or we have no confidence. Or you're great, you're terrific. I mean, these are the two sides of conceit. Or you're just as good as anyone else, the three sides of conceit. And that's because of belief in a self. So there's right speech, which is skillful speech, not harming anyone. That means other, any other person or ourselves. Right action and right livelihood. So do you work for a weapons company? What kind of, who do you work for? Is it ethical work? Very important. And if you do unethical work, change your job, ASAP. That, that's a, a, a must for a spiritual warrior, is to be engaged in ethical work. So selling arms, dealing in human trafficking, poisons, so many unskillful trades that one could be involved in or invested. And then the last three limbs are more to do with the actual meditation practice. But right effort covers everything. We have to make the effort to see. We have to make the effort to direct the mind with right intention. And of course, right effort in speaking is a practice. Not to lie, not to babble uselessly, not to insult people, not to insult ourselves, not to slander, use coarse language, not to deceive by speech or by conduct. It takes effort. It takes effort to find work that sustains the resilience of your own heart. I remember once I was in an airport 
It was in Ottawa. I ordered a wheelchair because I have balance issues. And this young man brought the wheelchair and he was wheeling me. And I said, how long have you been working like this? And he said, not long. And I'm not going to do this for much longer. I said, oh, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to be a policeman. And I said, really? That's a very difficult job. That's dangerous work. Are you going to really do He was such a lovely young kid. He said, yes, I really want to be a policeman. I said, why? He said, because nobody trusts the police. And I want to be a trustworthy policeman. I want people to know they can trust the police. What a beautiful being. There he is wheeling me very fast <laughs> down the, the uh, corridors of the airport. I said, don't get a speeding ticket. <laughs> I don't remember his name. He, I actually asked him for his name, but I've forgotten. Anyway, so we have to make the right effort, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Concentration, meaning, really, is how the mind is held. It's how the mind is directed. It's the stilling of mental formations, bringing the mind to the quiet, the quiet mind, the mind that is serene, that is resilient, that is bright, steadfast, and clear. This is called samadhi, when the mind rests in its own authority that it can know the truth of things and not be blemished stained and defiled by the world and by worldly insults and troubles, including what has happened to us in the past. Because that's the world. So this Eightfold Path is one that each of us can walk in safety, in health, towards freedom from every kind of suffering. Whatever suffering you describe, it's however terrible it might seem, we can be released from that. I have to read this one more quote to you. It's from the Sutta Nipata, one of the collections of discourses. It's number 16, the discourse to Sariputta. Now, many of you will know Sariputta was the most eminent of the Buddha's disciples next to Mahamogalana, Mahamogalana. And this is from the Atakavaga, number four. He or she would touch with loving kindness the moving and the still. Touch with loving kindness that which moves or that which doesn't move. Whatever he would understand to be turbidity of mind, 
whatever turmoil or turbidity, whatever confusion, whatever torment there is in the mind. He would dispel that thinking it is on the side of blackness, not healthy, not skillful, not true. Then what is loved and also what is unloved, he would masterfully withstand Overmastering. That means to be able to receive and let go. Receive and let go. Just by understanding it, by knowing it. We know it to be loved, we know it as unloved, and we let it go. Own it. We don't cling to any single thing. Having sent understanding before her, exhilarated by righteousness, she would render groundless every trouble. So every kind of suffering would become groundless. It would have nowhere to stand, not a leg to stand on. It's all empty. This is how we develop equanimity. We neither grasp that which we love, nor do we shun that which we don't love. We just understand all conditions as impermanent, suffering of the nature to bring suffering, and empty. So, thank you for listening. Sadhu, Sadhu, Sadhu.